Thank you, Melanie. Well, we're continuing this series, of course, on discipleship and, and creating a culture of discipleship in the church. In other words, um, moving a people to be oriented to the spiritual good of another person. That, that's the goal. The goal is to, to be concerned. And, w- and we've looked at the call to discipleship. That was the first, the first um, sermon we had in terms of you know, Jesus saying, follow me. And so there's this aspect of, of giving our lives over to Christ and, and helping others to follow him, as he said, make fishers of men. Then we looked at the, we looked at the cost of discipleship. You know, that For Jesus, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, there's a, Jesus went by way of a cross. And so to follow him means that there'll be hardship. And even there's hardship in helping others follow Jesus. And then last week we heard about a community of disciples that our oneness now, our identity, is no longer in our ethnicity, in our education, in our position in life, our identity is in Christ, who has reconciled us to the Father and to each other. Well, this week we're going to look at um, some characteristics. This is probably more, um, this might be more of a workshop than it is a sermon in terms of what are some of the characteristics to being a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple? I mean, street level, what does it look like? Now, Melanie's read the beautiful passage from verses 12 to 17, they really contain many ingredients of discipleship. I'm just going to look at one, and that's in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in wisdom. That's it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's really two facets that I want to look at today, just two. One is this, that the disciple treasures the word of Christ. The disciple treasures the word of Christ. If you're a disciple, if you're a follower, you will treasure his word. And that's what you see. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then the second point that I'll make is that the disciple shares the word of Christ. He shares the word of Christ. You know, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. It's really two sides to a coin is what it is. So, so let's look at the first piece. And then at the end, I'll just do this dump truck load of some application on you. But, but let's just get down this text real quick. Uh, look at the first point. It's just, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice, if, if you were to have read the entire book of Colossians, you'd know that he's already talked about the word of God in chapter 1 and the word of the Lord. Uh, and then now it's the word of Christ. He doesn't say the words of Christ, as if we're now to follow just these commands that Jesus gave, but it's the word of Christ. It's, it's not really just referring to the Bible, just generally speaking, but it's referring to this redemptive work God has done for us in Christ. So the word of Christ speaks specifically to this idea that God moves towards us with mercy in Christ, and he's sent a son to save, and the son has come and taken on flesh, And he's come to live among us in a way that we could never live, in a fully pleasing way to God. So every time God looks at him, he says, I'm pleased. He could never say that to us, but he says that to the Son. And then Jesus comes and lives and ministers and teaches, establishes a kingdom for which he suffers. And and then he dies, but he's raised and now seated at the right hand of God. That's all the words, that's the word of Christ, that gospel story. 
let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's what's to be resonant in our mind. The idea of dwelling in you isn't a passive, latent kind of thing. It's an active. It's setting up a home. It's taking up residence. Just as the God Spirit dwells with his people, so now the word of Christ dwells in us. Think of it like the beauty and the power of the gospel permeating and influencing and directing all your decisions, your thoughts, that, that, that it's resident in your mind, giving direction to the plans that you have. And as this word of Christ dwells in you, it's to dwell in you richly. Not scantily or minimally, but abundantly. I mean, think of the bucket just filled to the brim with water. As soon as you just move it, it spills over. The richness that it's to fill us isn't just quantity, though. It's, it's how you value it. I mean, the beauty of the word. I, I mean, just thinking about the promises that God would give to human creatures. I mean, that you're thinking about following his instructions, heeding his warnings. You know, that, that we're to value this word. You know, Matthew Henry says it this way. He a, was a Puritan preacher of the 17th century. He says, the message of Christ must be allowed to keep house, not as a servant, in the family who is under another's control, but as a master who has the right to prescribe and direct to all under his roof. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The disciple treasures this word of God. So when you look at your own life now, so let's just full stop here. When you look at your life, do you, does the word dwell in you richly? I mean, do do you think about it? Do you read the scriptures? Do you Meditate on the things that God has said? Uh, do you consider with great frequency this forgiveness that has been offered to you? I mean, do you cherish the idea that, that all the sins and the stain with them have been cleansed? Uh, do, you, do you relish this idea that death is not the end for us? It's actually the beginning of life with God. Do those things... Uh, Does this word of Christ govern your lives? Can you look back at the last week and say, yeah, this was changed because I read what God said and I now want to follow it. Now, I suspect that this is where everything gets a little uncomfortable for us. Um, The surveys are not encouraging in terms of our reading of the scriptures. Um, 11% those who affirm Christianity in the broadest sense read the Bible every day. 18% of those who would consider themselves born again read the Bible every day. A full 23% of those who say we're born again never read the Bible. Now, it's not that we don't think highly of the Bible. That's the irony. You know, I, I love the, the contradictions that are revealed in some of these surveys. That 80% of Americans find the Bible to be sacred. And in fact, the majority of Americans feel that the decrease in our our culture is due to not living according to the precepts of the Scriptures. So we have have this high value of of, of the Word of Christ, but we don't read it. So why don't we? I mean, I was trying to think, what stops us from reading the Scriptures? Because it, it's not a hard conviction 
to bring about your soul by saying, do you read the Bible? Why don't we read it? You know, I was thinking all the different options that I have, the things that are, I was trying to think, what are the things popping up in your mind right now? One would be, perhaps, I don't have time. I just don't have time. And uh, that, in fact, 47% of the people, remember I'm a numbers guy, CPA, I just love numbers. 47% of the people say that they don't have time to read the Bible. Now, we all have time, of course. We all have the same time, at least. But, but the question maybe shouldn't be, uh, do I have the time? Maybe the question should be, what are your priorities with the use of your time? Because we all have the same time, right? So what is keeping you busy from reading the scriptures? I want you to ask yourselves that. Now, I am sympathetic to those of you with, with young children, many young children. Life is busy. I mean, there's no doubt. It's, the house seems to be in perpetual motion. I'm also um, uh, sympathetic to the working men and women that are getting pressed at work and it's on your mind. You open up your computer, you got 30 emails that you have to deal with. I'm sympathetic to that, I really am. I, I want to, in fact, encourage you, though, that it's still possible to strive to finding time. You know, there's a general during World War II, General Harrison, he was a, a three-star general. And um, he uh, headed up the 30th um, Infantry Division. In fact, um, Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, said it was the greatest infantry division. And this three-star general was decorated with every Medal of Honor except the Congressional Medal of Honor. All the other medals for valor he received. He was the first American to lead the Allied Forces into Belgium in retaking that country. When he was a cadet at West Point, he decided to read the Old Testament through once a year and the New Testament four times a year, which he began to do. And he did that every year. And through the war, though there were some days that he did not read, by the end of the war, he was still on track. When he lost his eyesight in his uh, 91st year, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. This is a three-star general during World War II. I imagine his plate was full. And he was able to... So I want to encourage you that we have time. We have time. We, we have to treasure it, to give it the time to read it. Now, some of others in here might say, well, I don't really understand it. Well, there are difficult parts of the Bible, no doubt. But, but by and large, the Bible is understandable. It is, it is readable. You know, a few months back, I shared that funny quote from uh, Mark Twain, who said, uh, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do. You know, most of the Bible is understandable. If, if you struggle, though, start in the Gospels. Just read a Gospel, one chapter a day. Put a pad of paper in your Bible. Write down questions that you have. Bring it to church. Ask an elder. Ask someone next to you. Ask a staff member if you have questions about it. But don't let some confusing passages stop you from reading the scriptures as a whole. Others of you may say, I just don't want to. And I, I appreciate honest answers like that. I would say then pray. Ask God for a desire <clears throat> to want to read the scriptures. Ask him, God, help me desire this. I know for Carol, she has long prayed for that desire. 
Her testimony would be that it's never really been easy for her to read the scriptures. And so she prays for the desire and strives at it anyway. Others of you may say, well, I don't have to. I don't have to read the scriptures. As it's been pointed out to me by other theologians, it doesn't say thou shalt write, read the scriptures every single day. And it's true, you won't find that in the scriptures. <clears throat> and I want to be sensitive because we are in a hypersensitive culture now. And uh, we, uh, you know, particularly within Christendom, we don't like anymore saying you, sh- you have to do this because we don't want to be pegged with the title legalist. But let me put it to you this way. If you never read your Bible, and you don't really want to ever read your Bible, and you don't even desire a desire to read your Bible, then you're probably not a Christian. It, it's, it's that simple. The, the scriptures are a barometer for you. Uh, they, they, they're a barometer as to where you are with God. I mean, because the scriptures have been given to us by God as a divine revelation. And so I don't mean to put it so black and white, but I think if, if time keeps pressing and you never read them, there's a fundamental problem to what you would say is faith in you. Okay, so why is the press here in scripture? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why is that? Well, think about it with me for a minute. I mean, the scriptures are revealing God to us. So you can see God in creation. You you can definitely see power. You see wisdom. You see beauty. Uh, But the scriptures are special revelation. They reveal the character, the purposes, the intentions of God. Everybody here is a theologian, by the way. If I were to ask any of you, what do you think of God? You'd have an answer for me. Maybe wrong, but you'd have an answer for me. So everybody thinks about God. They have ideas. Reading the scriptures helps you become a good theologian, a correct theologian. I mean, how else will you know about the one who has sent his son to die for you? The scriptures inform us about the character of God. The scriptures tether us so that we just can't wax eloquent about, well, this is what I think God is like as if we somehow figured it all out between the ears. But now that, the scriptures reveal to us who we are. It's the one source of true self-knowledge. We cannot self-diagnose with perfection who we are. You know, the social scientists will tell you that man, humanity, is in fact inherently good. And if that's true, and for many it is, it sets in motion certain educational philosophies, certain criminal justice understandings. But the scriptures teach us that man is inherently broken or sinful, turned towards self. Well, that causes us to go on a whole different trajectory as to what do we think about criminal justice? I mean, think about our own government here in the United States. We have a judicial branch, we have an executive branch, we have a legislative branch. All the checks and balances are there. Why? Because they saw in Scripture that man is inherently sinful. So think about the the huge implications to misdiagnose yourself. So we we, we learn about ourselves. The Scriptures are like a mirror to us as we read about them. They inform us about ourselves and our need. The Scriptures reveal truth to us, transcendent truth. That is true truth that, that makes all of the truth clear to us. 
you don't have the scriptures, how do you discern right from wrong? Error from righteousness. How do you do it? I mean, just take, for example, in my lifetime, uh, the, the, the dietary changes that have come. So I was raised with a stick of butter on the table. That became very bad in, I think, the early 70s, replaced with margarine, margarine in a tub. And, uh, and margarine was going to be good for us, but margarine did not last long. It shifted back to butter, and now butter is good for us. Eggs went the way they were good for you, then powdered eggs we ate because of the cholesterol, but now eggs are good again. Bread, I think bread's on the out right now. It's because it has grain and it creates inflammation. I, I love bread. So I, I'm pulling for bread. I'm hoping it's coming back in soon. And, and so this cultural wisdom that kind of shifts like a hula girl, it, 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 it is not the place. Now, now take that and go to life, morality, gender, marriage, parenting. And then we start swinging back and forth on that. I, I mean, there, there is no way you can lead a life of consistency and stability when you listen to the pundits of culture. It's God's truth that gives direction to us. Not just God's truth, but, but, but life, the meaning and the purpose of life. Where do we get that from? Who will tell us why we exist? How we eliminate meaninglessness from us, except from the scriptures. Or what about death? Hey, we all have to bury people, and we will be buried. How do we handle that? What do we think about that? What, what is the culture? What does science have to say to us? You know, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher in um, London in the 19th century, uh, he one day came to the pulpit, he's about to preach, and comes to the Bible, normally opens it and reads it. He didn't this time. He, um, what he did was he stood before the Bible, and here's what he said. He said, some have found fault with me, contending that I'm too old-fashioned. I am always quoting the Bible, and I don't say enough about science. This is the rise of science, of course, and, and it was bleeding itself into all the pulpits. He says, well, there's a poor widow here who has lost her only son. She wants to know if she will ever see him again. Let's turn to science for the answer. Will she see him? Where is he? Does death end all? Then he just paused. We're anxious for an answer. We're waiting for an answer. This woman is anxious. And so he paused. Nothing to say? Then we'll turn to the book. And he began to read where Jesus is speaking about eternal life and the glories of heaven. Where do we learn about dealing with the the end point for all of us, apart from the scriptures. So the scriptures are for us. They're a lamp unto our feet, David says. That we are to delight in the law of God. We'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, always bearing its fruit. It's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, David says in Psalm 19. So for the Christian here, I'm not saying here's how you have to read. But I'm saying that we have to read. So perhaps for some of you, it's a chapter. You begin with a chapter. Perhaps for others of you, it may be more. It may be to read through the Bible in a year. But let me encourage you that the scriptures have been given to us, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Now, if you're not a Christian here, you're visiting, I 
Glad you're here, thankful for it. What do you say about the scriptures? Everybody has an opinion on the scriptures. Some want to say it's a book by men. Some want to say it's just culturally embedded in, in this culture of which we know little about. And it's very unreadable, unrelatable. Others say it's full of contradictions. Well, I would just ask you, if that's your position, have you read the Bible? Have you read it through? I have found in my short stay on this planet that those who have the strongest opinions against the Bible have not read the Bible. But you're left, and I would just challenge, you're left to discern what is going to be truth for you. How do you discern right and wrong? Stephen Colbert, the, the um, replacement for David Letterman, said these words interestingly. He said this about the nature, and this came out of the change in our culture regarding uh, the ruling from the um, Supreme Court on same-sex marriage. He says this, It used to be everyone was entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. But that's not the case anymore. Facts matter not at all. Perception is everything. It's certainty. It's not only that I feel it to be true, but that I feel it to be true. You can't live with perception as reality. There was this interview done recently on a college campus. And the interviewer interviewed a Caucasian man who was five feet eight inches. And this man was explaining that he was really Asian, six foot tall. And so the interviewer said, well, we've got a problem because we have a ruler. And a ruler would define feet, and you're not six feet tall. And he says, I feel that I'm six feet tall, and I am an Asian. People in the crowd, and it got, went back and forth, as you can imagine, kind of temperature increases a little bit. People in the crowd say, well, if he feels that way, then he is. Now, that's where we are. So if you don't have a transcendent truth to guide your life, and you're going to be guiding your life on the perception of the way you view life right now, I would say get a seatbelt very fast because things will be changing. In fact, they're going to be changing even more and more, I think, as you go on. So that's the first point of a two-point sermon, that the word of Christ is to dwell in you richly. But notice what Paul does. The second point of discipleship is the disciple shares the word of Christ. He says, teaching and admonishing. Paul doesn't want us to be these individual repositories of truth, but we are to actually take the truth of the word of Christ and share it with one another, to teach and admonish. In other words, to teach it. This is more of a, a formal teaching term. This is appealing to the intellect, that we are called to instruct one another in the things of God. And let me put it to you this way. He really wants us to help each other know God better. So let's just say that. To teach is to help one another know God better. That we're to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly so that we can help others know God better, that we're instructing them, we're encouraging them about who God is and how God works in our marriage, how God works in our trials, how God works in our life. We're to instruct one another to help others know about God, to teach one another. But not just teach one another, but also admonish one another. The word for admonish is kind of a broader term. It has the idea of correction, you know, that 
You are to correct a person if their life is going towards a destructive way, that you're to admonish them, you're to correct them, you're to call them to amend their life. We have that responsibility. To, if you're a disciple, you want to be helping others know God better, but also helping others live better by challenging them when their lives are going in errant directions. Not just correction, though, also encouragement. Encouraging them to persevere in times of trial and difficulty, times of struggle. So this second part of being a disciple is, you know, you want the word of Christ to dwell on you richly. You want to treasure the word of God. You want to also share the word of God. And sharing the word of God or sharing the word of Christ in our passage is to help others know God better, help others live better lives. John Wesley, of course, you know him as the founder of Methodism, And he wrote these words once. He said this. He says, I I know of no other place under heaven where I can have some friends always at hand of the same judgment and engaged in the same studies, persons who are awakened into full conviction that they have one work to do on earth. They are absolutely devoted to God. He says this. To have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering as need, reproof or advice, is a blessing I not know where to find in any part of the kingdom. In other words, he's saying, I need people to teach and admonish me. I need people to help me know God better. I need people to help me live before God better. Do you feel that way? Do you need that? Do you tend to run from any sort of constructive word of grace in your life? Would you find it absolutely Would you be aghast if someone actually came in and weighed in on your life? The disciple here seems to invite it. He, He says, please engage me in my life. If you see me walking in a way that will leave me unprepared for that last day, don't hate me, love me. Love me and speak to me. I'd rather have you instruct me so that I can make the changes necessary before God instructs me. Are you open to that? The disciple seems to be. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian that died at the very end of World War II. Here's what he wrote in his book, Living Together. It was a book that that came out of his experience in the underground church when persecution was coming on. On the church, he says this, God has put his word into the mouth of men and women in order that it may be communicated to other men and women. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or sister in the mouth of man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain, discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. He needs a brother or sister as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. Do you feel you need that? Is there anybody that you have ever invited into your life to say, please, you have the freedom to speak truth to me because you love me and you want me to be right with God on that great day? Do you have someone in your life? Would you be open to that? So that's what a disciple is. If you're a disciple, a disciple simply treasures the word of God, having it richly dwell within him, and a disciple shares the word of God. 
both teaching and admonishing in the giving and the receiving. Okay, so what do we do with all this? So tomorrow's going to come. How are you going to take a step towards discipleship? I said this wanted to be, we wanted this to be a practical series. So what is the step that we take? Well, let me give you about five instructions to consider. And hopefully these will be practical and help you go forward. First would be simply this, uh, that you would be intentional. In other words, that you're going to be intentional to orient your life towards another person for their spiritual good. That you will be intentional. So, for example, in relationship to the church, uh, when do you come to church? Do you come to church right before the singing begins? Do you come to church right after the singing begins? And where do you sit when you come to church? Do, do you sit in a place that's closest by the exit? Or do, you, or do you sit only with your friends? Do you tend to scamper right out once the service is over? And this is a wonderful opportunity where, where the community of faith is gathered together and we can utilize this time to engage one another and to get to know one another and, and to speak truth and encouragement to one another. Or the content of your conversations. Are you intentional about your conversations or do they just kind of drift like plankton on the sea? And what I mean by are you intentional in your conversations, are you seeking to speak in a manner that is for the good of the other? You know, you know many of us are just narcissist conversationalists. We, we tend to talk about ourselves incessantly. And, and we, we say very little, you know, we leave conversations wondering, what did I just learn about the person? Well, maybe nothing, because you didn't ask him anything. So intentionality in conversations is, I am looking to speak with you about your good, a, a, about a way of moving you forward, and not simply, there's a place, obviously, that we talk about ourselves, but there's that dialogue back and forth of wanting to know other people. How are they doing? How can I pray for you? To, to know a little bit more intimately about their lives. Or, or that we're intentional about our, our relationships with people. You know, are, are we intentional? Like, I would encourage some of you uh, to think, uh, if you're not reading the Bible with someone, if you're not reading a book with someone, just ask someone to join you. Be intentional about a specific relationship hey, would you read the Bible with me? Let's just read a chapter together. Now, you may want to be selective about who you ask for the first time. You may want to ask somebody who's close to you geographically so you don't have to drive to Virginia to meet. You, you, you may want to ask someone who's maybe close in proximity to you with your age you know, or your station in life. You may both have teenage kids. It might be a little bit easier in terms of coordinating schedules. Maybe you want to you want to ask somebody that's in close proximity to you and um, respect to their inclination and their desire. So you, you may want to pick people that, that you even have a certain friendship with. Ultimately, you don't want to have to be bound by all these close proximities, but it may be a good start. So think about that. You know, there's a book that we have outside and we can order for you is one-to-one. It's a sweet little book about how to have discipleships. I'm doing this with, with two, three different guys. Dude, we just read a chapter together. We read a chapter. They got questions in the back. We'll post a link on the website for you with all their questions. And we just read the scripture together. And then we just ask the questions that are printed right here. And we ask questions like, what's it tell us about God? 
What do we learn from God about the passage? Because every passage of the Bible reveals something about God. And then what should we do now that we've learned that about God? It's really a simple little study. But it's really good because we're talking about our lives and we're talking about how we can grow in a greater love for God. So let's be intentional, be deliberate. Okay, and then secondly, I would say we want to be normal. I'm asking people to be disciplers. I'm not asking theological wizards. Discipleship is for all of us here. So this is, you don't have to be spiritually trained or theologically trained to be a person who disciples another. You don't have to be that way. Remember, the word disciple means learner. We're all learners. We just are learning together. And I know some of you may, in fact, think, I could never do this because my life is in topsy-turvy mode. I, I, I feel this hypocrisy if I go and help teach somebody and learn from somebody when my life is in shambles. Well, let me tell you, here's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is you're putting forth an image over here that is not in accordance with reality, right? Hypocrisy is you're putting forth an image that is not in accordance with reality. So how do we get rid of hypocrisy? Just confess reality. Hey, this is who I am. You eliminate hypocrisy in a skinny second. This is who I am. My marriage isn't in the best of shape, but I need to learn about Christ. I, I, I don't have it all together. I don't really know a lot of the Bible. I've never read the Bible all the way through, but I, wa I want to learn. That's how we eliminate hypocrisy, is just confessing the truth about where we are. So, so we want to be normal about it. And then thirdly, we want to be in community. That, that to be a discipler, you have to be in community. You have to be plugged in with your life affecting the lives of others. So, you know, if you were to read earlier in chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And, and, and here's, what, here's what's implicit in Paul's chapter. When you become a Christian, your old habits, your lusts, your angers, your bitternesses, they don't vanish. But God works them out of your life through your involvement with other people. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, he talks about this deep magic, this deep magic of, of when Aslan, the main character, died. I'm not going to tell you what kind of animal he was, but <laughs> those of you who have been here for a few years, I've bumbled that one good, but uh, the, the deep magic really is speaking to God beginning to restore his original design in men and women. God bringing us back to where he originally designed us to be. But that deep magic is practiced by us, by the way that we move towards one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. In fact, can you just imagine with me for a minute if we were a community that was so oriented to another and their spiritual good and their spiritual preparation, can you imagine what this place would be like? People willing to lay down their lives for the benefit of another across the board, their spiritual well-being. Leslie Newbegin was a, a British missiologist, and he was a um, missionary as well, and theologian, and he said this, he says, Jesus never wrote a book, and he never established a school. His legacy was a community. That when the community walks in the manner that Jesus prescribed, that's the greatest apologetic, that's the greatest defense of the veracity of the gospel. 
Now, our culture is growing away from associationisms. It's growing away from community. From 1970 to 2012, the last census taken, those living alone went to 27% of our nation from 12 in 42 years. The aloneness of our nation is increasing. And I'll tell you, as Christianity grows in becoming a minority, the community here will be a priority to you. And, and so I want to encourage you that, that the trajectory of our human nature, we want to be alone because we want to do what we want to do. But God is so designed, discipleship takes place in community. And, and then fourth, I just want you to be patient with one another. That discipling takes time. Uh, training a person to do things differently takes time. You know, I've been working with Carol to look in her rearview mirror when she backs up for years. For years. And I think, by golly, she's got it. It's true, it takes time. I look at parenting, how many times I instructed the children to say thank you or to greet this new person. And it, you, you think, as a parent, as a new parent, you think, well, I've told them. Can't they just get it? Do your kids get it? I mean, I, I think I told one of the children probably 18,000 times to say thank you, but they got it. They got it. So changing a person takes time. You know that. Just go try to change a habit right now that you have that you don't like. It's difficult. It takes time. We need to be patient. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, admonish the idle, help the weak, strengthen the brokenhearted, and be patient with all. You know, the interaction with people, be patient with people. It takes a lot of time to change us. And then the last thing would be more of a warning. And I would say be warned about doing nothing to what I've just said. Be warned about that. And, and here's why. You and I have hearts that are prone to wander. And sin is deceitful. What sin does is it tries to get you to think it's not as bad as it is. And it, and it hardens our heart. In fact, the writer of Hebrews warns us this way. He says this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know how sin can, can soften us and deceive us, and our hearts get hardened to the things of God. We become more accepting of that which we didn't once accept. And, and we need one another. But because our hearts are tending to drift away from God. In fact, D.A. Carson, a recent a contemporary scholar, said this. He says, people don't drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience, scripture. In other words, we need each other. He says this, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So we need each other. 
our hearts are prone to wander. And last, our hearts, I want to warn you that your hearts are prone to live isolated lives. And you can live an isolated life as a member of this church. You can. And I want to warn you. As the writer of Proverbs says, listen to these words. They're almost chilling. He says in Proverbs 5, At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how, I, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. So they were here in the whole assembly. And now their heart's groaning because they didn't listen. They didn't heed instruction. They rejected the correction. So what we're trying to encourage here, you know, this is discipleship is for the rest of our lives. We only have a five-week series on it. We're surely not going to cover it all. And the idea is that both in your homes, discipleship should be taking place. Fathers, mothers, encouragement within the marital union, but also within the church here, teach and admonish one another. So let's take a minute now and just silently confess perhaps our, our lack of devotion, of treasuring God's word. Perhaps we want to confess our lack of sharing God's word. Perhaps we want to just ask for grace, ask for help. Uh, and then an elder will close us in a few minutes.